I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Shannon Bond joins me here. Shannon, what a year it's been. Cardiff, it's been quite the year. And we are now the, the, what, the ghosts of Christmas past come to talk about it. Yeah, we're, we're, we're out of here. We should tell everybody this is our final podcast of the year, but actually we are taping this the Friday beforehand, Friday the 18th, and you and I are gone, but we thought we'd leave our listeners with a kind of end of year special. We went to not all of them, but a lot of the reporters in the FT's US newsroom, DC, New York, San Francisco, and asked them to tell us their favorite stories of 2015 and what they're looking for in 2016. Yeah, so we've got a lot of good stuff. Rate rise, we've got pharma craziness, merger craziness, the year of Trump, and of course, uh, Silicon Valley and the unicorns, and is there a bubble? Yeah, speaking of unicorns, uh, I think my favorite story of 2015 was the founding of FT Alpha Chat. And my favorite story of 2016 will be the rise and rise and rise of said alpha chat, especially now that you're on board. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been the year of the podcast, right? It has been, including for us. Including for us. Okay, let's get right to it. Okay, first up, David Crow and James Fontanella Khan here to round up 2015 in the pharma sector and in MA. David, your favorite stories of the year? Well, it has to be the tweet from Hillary Clinton, the Democratic presidential frontrunner. She pledged to crack down on drug pricing after a small company raised the price of a medicine often given to AIDS sufferers from about $13 a pill to over $700 a pill. She said that wouldn't happen under her, and it wiped tens of billions of dollars off of the uh, sector. A lot of people uh, like to say in biotech that biotech wouldn't exist if Hillary had got her way back in the 90s and had Hillary care. So the specter of her coming in as president really does spook them. There was a villain in this story too, right? There was a villain. Uh, he, you couldn't have asked for a better pantomime villain. It was <laughs> the uh, sociopathic Martin Shkreli who, um, who sort of positively reveled in the fact that he was hiking the price of this drug and, and continues to do so. Perhaps the biggest victim, though, was Valiant, if you like, uh, the, the, the largest company anyway that, that got hit by this. It was seen as the most egregious uh, price hiker of all the big uh, pharmaceutical companies, and um, investors have punished it severely since. James, in a year of huge deals, what was your biggest deal? So as you say, it was a record year, the, and the top deal was, I mean, the biggest one. So it was the Pfizer acquisition of Allegan, and this was a very controversial deal. So two kind of pharmaceutical companies, two very large ones. It was $160 billion, the total value of the deal. And it was controversial because Allegan, a kind of U.S. pharmaceutical company, will be moving its tax base out of the U.S. to Ireland. And that will has angered a lot of politicians in Washington. Hillary Clinton has been rallying against it and saying that she is not going to impose probably if she becomes president, obviously, 
a exit tax on companies willing to move their tax base. And also Carl Icahn, the activist uh, investor, has written and like kind of set up a, a super PAC to, to fight against these tax inversions. So highly controversial deal. And you know, a lot of jobs will be lost. And it's kind of been also crazier in general, top the crazier for pharma companies like kind of merging. And David and I have been working together on an endless number of deals. I've probably lost count. And yeah, it's been quite quite a crazy crazy year for for M and A and pharma. I take it that you're going to be looking at that going into 2016 as well. In other words, the possibility that these kinds of deals will actually be either stopped or mitigated somehow by policy proposals, right? Absolutely, it's uh, it's it's definitely on on the agenda. Uh, it's there's been a lot of talk about tax reform, and uh, there's a sense that like these companies moving their tax bases uh, tax base out of the U.S has brought to the light the fact that the U.S. has a very uncompetitive tax regime for companies compared to other um, countries, um, namely Ireland in this case, but plenty of others. Even the U.K. has a more attractive uh, tax system for, for companies. But m- more broadly, there's a sense that like in a, in, a, in a year where there's going to be a presidential election, you're going to have a lot of candidates kind of going after bankers and banks and mega deals which are gonna, where there's a lot of layoffs and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm sort of intrigued by the narratives that surround these deals too, because it's always like so tempting to frame this in terms of good guys versus bad guys. But actually, you look at it, and a lot of these companies feel like they don't have a choice. But in reality, the system that drives these deals is itself flawed in many ways, and maybe that's going to be the the sort of driving narrative of what happens next year. David, what do you think? I mean, no one thinks that the tax system in the US is fit for purpose, not the president, not Congress, not the companies. And, and there are a lot of other companies, Merck and Johnson & Johnson in my sector, who are sitting with very high tax rates compared to their overseas peers, are generating a lot of their earnings outside of the US. And if there's not tax reform after the next president gets into the White House, then the inversion problem becomes a serious headache for the next administration because a lot of other big companies could follow Pfizer out the door. And across other sectors too, right? Across other sectors too. Any sector where you are generating a lot of your sales outside of the country, so Apple, for example, is is always listed as... Um, I mean, can you imagine it? Apple doing an inversion. I mean, it sounds unthinkable, but, you know, who knows if we don't get tax reform next year. David, anything else on your agenda next year? The one deal besides Pfizer Allergan that got everyone talking this year was Celgene Receptos. It was a small deal. Celgene bought Receptos for $7.5 billion. It made the headlines because Celgene could have bought uh, Receptos for $500 million, not $7.5 billion, but a fraction of that, in 2013. Walked away from the deal and then ended up paying so much more just two years later, a sign of how the valuations have exploded. But we think we're going to see more deals like this, these sort of companies around the $10 billion mark that the big biotech companies want to buy to fill in their pipelines. One of the big themes that I'm going to explore next year, probably again with David, is that a lot of these companies have reached so big and to move the needle, they need to buy kind of something that is kind of large. And what we're talking, when we're talking about large is like $10 billion, $20 billion deals, which allows them to kind of grow their revenues because we need to remember the environment that we're in at the moment is one of kind of pretty modest growth. And so the only way they can get that growth is by doing these kind of bolt-on big acquisitions with stuff which kind of can guarantees them like revenues right away. So they won't be investing in the 
500 million dollar company which is maybe on its kind of first trial kind of phase one but something which has like something more def- definitive that they can put on the market right away david crow james fontanella khan thanks guys thanks Thank for having you. me We're now joined by Sujit Indap, U.S. Lex editor, and in San Francisco, our correspondent, Leslie Hook. Hi, guys. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Cardiff. Good to be here. So to kick it off, Leslie, what was your favorite story of 2015? Well, I think the big story of 2015 was the end of the quote unquote steroid era of startups. You know, 2014, 2015, we've just seen money washing into Silicon Valley and tons of unsustainable businesses have been getting funded. And toward the end of the year, this past year, that's really started to cool down and shift. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people, a lot of investors are, are, are welcoming and, you know, next year, we're going to see how that plays out further. So maybe maybe we'll get fewer questions like, are startups in a massive bubble? And now we'll actually start to find out whatever the repercussions are of whatever was happening with them in the last couple of years. Exactly. And I think in 2016, you know, it's going to be a year when the wheat is separated from the chaff and some startups are probably going to, you know, fail or get sold. Um, I think the big startups that are in the headlines like Uber, like Airbnb will probably be fine. But it, for the smaller startups, there is a real change in sentiment. Investors are becoming a little more cautious, a little more skeptical. And so I think some of the the smaller to medium-sized startups could struggle in the year ahead. Are we going to see the death of the term unicorn finally? Uh, I hope so, but it, it it's kind of catchy and like it might not go away. <laughs> I can't promise you that. Sijit? So what was most interesting to me as someone who pays attention to corporate earnings and uh, corporate stories generally was uh, the fallout in oil and gas. This industry in the U.S. exploded in the last three or four years. Uh, coincides obviously with the, uh, the credit cycle and how um, easy money became, and now that's all changed very quickly. So the question is, next year as we go into next year, does monetary tightening, does interest rates being slightly slightly higher, and a world that's awash in commodities, does that actually lead to a real shakeout? It's been a big story, kind of. Uh, from a previewing point of view, but we really haven't seen it, uh, the manifestation of it or the pain that has been predicted. So that's really what I'm looking out for next year. But also an example of how a hugely important macro trend, the decline in the price of oil, feeds through into general chaos in financial markets, right? Yeah, exactly. And then uh, even uh, on a more micro scale in places like Texas or the Midwest or North Dakota, places that have really driven whatever economic growth we've seen in this country, how sharp the shakeout is going to be there. I mean, there are definitely boom towns in, in these places, and uh, that could change very quickly, it seems. Do, do you have a view on whether or not high-yield bond markets will stabilize next year, given the sort of calamitous decline in the last couple of months? Yeah, so what's interesting about the high-yield market is that uh, it's not as diversified as uh, maybe a stock index is. So there really is a lot of exposure to uh, commodities companies, energy, coal, companies like that. And so when people look at indices and how sharply they've declined, they're really looking at a few sectors. If you were actually to be more selective about high-yield bonds in, in broader set of industries, the shakeout actually isn't that bad. So what's going to be interesting next year for portfolio managers is how they actually pick out which securities are in trouble and which one are not. Because there are definitely companies that are, are doing fine. The U.S. economy, as you know, Cardiff, is more or less uh, steady and growing, uh, albeit slowly, but it's not a, it's really not a, a recession or a pullback going on uh, broadly. Okay, we're going to do a one-question bonus round. 
Okay. Favorite IPO candidate for 2016? Leslie. That's a really tough one. Um, that's really tough. I'm probably going to go with – it's between Uber and Airbnb. Both of them claim they're not going to IPO this year. But if I had to guess, I would put my money on Airbnb as an IPO candidate next year. Okay. Uh, as a New Yorker, I'll go with SoulCycle, uh, which has filed for uh, an IPO, just preliminary paperwork. They haven't picked a date, uh, but that's supposedly coming next year. Uh, it's kind of in the theme of a Shake Shack or Lululemon, one of these lifestyle brands that appeals to a very small group of rich people in uh, elite cities. Why it's a, a great stock is a huge question mark. Uh, so to see how it's actually marketed and received in the market is going to be interesting to watch. Great. Thanks, Sujit. And thanks, Leslie. Thanks, Shannon and Cardiff. Thanks, guys. Up next on the show are Dimitri Sevastopolo, the DC bureau chief for the FT, and Courtney Weaver, the newly installed US political correspondent. Guys, thanks for talking to Alpha Chat. Thanks for having Hi. us. Dimitri, uh, your favorite story of 2015. I think the only story of 2015 is the rise of Donald Trump, the guy who came from nowhere, has shocked everybody, is leading the polls, and uh, could be the Republican nominee for president. Does that mean that that's what you're going to be looking at in 2016, Dimitri? <laughs> Uh, 2016, we're going to be looking at whether Trump can win the, the caucus in Iowa and go on to win the nomination, and uh, whether Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz, the Cuban-American senators, whether they can chip away at him and actually uh, and beat him and, and get the ticket. But uh, that's what we're going to be watching in the next few months. Okay. Courtney, you're, you are, for our listeners who don't know, you are sort of newly installed in the D.C. office. You previously were based in Moscow. Uh, you recently wrote a piece on the Putinesque qualities of Donald Trump. Is that also your favorite story of 2015? I would have to say so. I mean, I think it's a little bit simplistic to compare them too much uh, as characters, but just looking at their supporters and the way that they resonate with their um, their bases, I do think that there are some similarities and also their mutual affection for one another. Putin just today uh returned Trump's compliments and said he found him flamboyant and the absolute leader in the election. So it'll be interesting to see how that shapes up. What, what are some of the similarities between their followers? I think that they both respect the fact that they're two, you know, they perceive them as strong leaders. They like, they both have this kind of salty language. They're not afraid to, you know, to speak off the cuff, to be politically incorrect. And I think they like the fact that other people are scared of them and think that they're unpredictable and don't really know how to react to them. Yeah. I've got a question for both of you, I guess. Uh, to what extent is the bluster of Donald Trump and of Ted Cruz and some of the other candidates just your kind of typical right-wing posturing during the nomination season that inevitably when we get to the general election um, will sort of be... I don't know, I guess I guess kind of uh, salted away as everybody moves towards the center. Do you think this will continue into the latter stages of next year as well as we get closer to November? Dimitri. I think if if you look at past elections, the Republican candidate almost always veers towards the center after they've uh, won the nomination. But this year, this this campaign is different. We don't really know what Donald Trump will do. Um, and Ted Cruz has always been very conservative. But ultimately, if you want to win the general election, you have to come closer to the center because so many Americans are either independents or they're on the fence. So I think it's inevitable it'll happen to a certain extent. And Courtney, do we have any sense sort of, you know, given that, given what we've seen so far from the Republican field, 
how how is the presumptive Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton going to deal with this, particularly if it is Trump who ends up being the, the Republican nominee? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what everyone is waiting to see. I mean, I think there are certain people in her camp who would be very happy to see Trump as the nominee because they think he's too divisive and that it would make a lot of people come out and vote for, for Clinton. But you have people in her camp saying that maybe it'll be Cruz, maybe it'll be Rubio, but really she you know, can't really plan until, until we have more uh, info on who the candidate will actually be. All right, guys. Well, there's uh, it's a presidential campaign season coming up next year. Always very exciting. But if a byline has Dmitry Sevastopolo or Courtney Weaver on it, then our listeners absolutely have to read it. Thanks so much for talking to Alpha Chat, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Stories of the Year in Markets. We are joined by Robin Wigglesworth, U.S. Markets Editor, and my colleague on Alphaville, Matt Klein. Robin, a veritable smorgasbord of options to choose from your favorite story of 2015? Well, I think my favorite one, just given that it's dominated my life for most of the year, is the Federal Reserve and the will they, won't they, sort of waiting for yeah. the door moment of an interest rate increase. And we finally have one this week. So that's pretty exciting. That's been a little bit fun to writing in and out. But, you know, now there, I'm looking forward to the next one. There really was no escaping it this year, was there? I mean, like you, you know, all four of us at this table couldn't get away from it. How big a deal is it really? It is a big deal because it's a moment. I mean, on one hand, it's a quarter point increase. I mean, it's a bit meh and shouldn't really matter. And it seems to have gone gone down fairly well. But, you know, there's a bit of a moment. You know, we haven't had an interest rate increase for almost a decade. And we've had, you know, quite a long time of zero interest rate policy. So, you know, if this starts the the path towards normalization as of healing from the financial crisis, I think it's quite uh, evocative. I have a question for Shannon, actually. All right. So, Shannon, the other three of us here at this table are like econ mm-hmm. writers, okay? You nerds. cover business and media and a bunch of other stuff. That's right. We're nerds. Were you at all annoyed by this topic this year, or did you find it kind of like obscurely interesting from a distance and maybe it'll have an impact on my life someday? Well, the problem is I work at the FT, so I find <laughs> I feel like I'm not a great demographic for this. Because, yeah, like to you know, sort of academically, I found it interesting. You know, in terms of actual impact on like the companies I cover, I mean, the impact so far, you know, it's been a huge deal year, as we talked about with James, and a lot of that has to do with just easy money. And so, you know, the question going forward, at what point do we see that start to tighten is interesting, but still very theoretical, right? Okay. Matt Klein, your favorite story of 2015. So I'm just going to say up front, this is not a story I think is has global significance, but it's, it's my favorite because I think it's funny and not something people would have necessarily guessed, which is that the best performing... Among the best performing assets you could have bought at the start of this year were Ukrainian and Argentinian sovereign debt, which considering that these are countries that respectively have been invaded and have had their debts written down by the IMF or in cooperation with an IMF program and a country that's perennially been in trouble and in fact forced to default on its debt thanks to intervention by U.S. courts, it's uh, I find this uh, highly uh, entertaining and amusing. I don't think it's going to be a predictor for you know what they're going to do next year, but um, it was. I'm it's guessing that took everybody by surprise, right? Robin, you're a sovereign debt geek. Like, did you see this coming at all? Well, I thought on the Ukrainian side, it was because that debt write down was a lot more generous than people thought. People thought that Ukraine would, given the problems they're in, take you know, the proverbial chainsaw to creditors. But creditors put up a really big fight and managed to get away with quite a big deal. So, you know, when the restructuring wasn't that tough, the bonds rallied. Argentina is fascinating because those debts are actually in default. The expectation is that the new government there will suddenly service them. 
we'll see. But it has been fascinating to see. I mean, this goes to show that, you know, in a world where there's been a paucity of investment opportunities, you know, people will pile into some of these kind of slightly old situations, sometimes be rewarded incredibly well for it as well. Were there many people who were prescient enough to guess this would happen? I mean, I guess the short answer would be sort of by definition, no, because otherwise it wouldn't have been such attractively priced at the beginning of the year. But yeah, it's not something that people I remember hearing people talk about at the time. Uh, speaking of prescience, uh, what are you guys looking ahead to in 2016, Robin? Well, I'm going to look at the impact of the Fed interest rate increase. I mean, that's going to be sort of an obvious one that dominates my life for the next 12 months. And how many hikes we have, what impact does that have? It's going to cause more carnage in emerging markets or things so bad, things start to pick up. And then obviously, you know, China was China heading. I mean, they've been slowing down for so long. You know, are they going to go over the cliff or are they going to stabilize? Uh, that can be, you know, that's going to basically change everything around the world, whatever happens in China. Yeah, so I mean, what's intriguing too is that the market is expecting a very shallow path of rate rises in the coming year, shallower than the Fed itself is anticipating. Are we headed for some kind of a big reckoning between those two things at some point? I think we have to at some point. That doesn't mean that big reckoning has to be a sort of a aggressive like a tantrum. Yeah, no, exactly. But you know, at some time point, we have to reconcile the two that you know the Fed is saying four hikes. And, you know, it's not impossible we'll have more if the data stays strong and the market is basically saying two at most and not a single hike until midpoint next year. That could be a little bit iffy. But, you know, presumably the market will, as the data improves, maybe come towards the Fed's view. And the Fed will maybe realize, well, we don't need to hike four times this year. By the end of the year, if the, you know, the effective rate is around 1%, that should be okay. So let's, you know, cross our fingers. So one thing I think related to that that's interesting is that ever since the Fed started publishing its dot plot forecast of where they thought rates were going to be, they've consistently been higher than what the market's in pricing. And over time, there's been a convergence down for both the market and the Fed, where the Fed has generally moved in the direction of where the market was and the market then moves even further. If you look at what's currently priced in for, um, say, like 20 – like three years from now or four years from now, it's been a huge change over the past year and a half from like – I think 4% or so on what Fed funds would be, give or take, to something like two, two and a half, that kind of thing. So there's been clearly a huge move there in sort of the opposite direction of what you'd think would be happening if the Fed were going to be more aggressive. At the same time, we've seen the Feds, they have this longer run projection of what they think uh, short rates are going to be. And that's come down a lot significantly from something on the order of like four and a half to like three and a quarter. So you know, just because we're having rates going up on the short term and there's a disconnect, it seems equally, if not more likely, that the Fed's going to have to come down to the market view. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, clearly, the Fed has been the one that's been wrong, and that's sort of thrown the towel continually. I do suspect that, I mean, the long-run forecasts, I mean, really, who cares? I mean, the Fed struggles to forecast what's going to happen in the next quarter, let them what's going to happen in 17, 18, or in the long run. I think those are complete pie-in-the-sky guesswork, you know, whatever I feel for that morning. So I think, actually, 2016, they are saying four hikes, the market's saying two and, you know, maybe the marks are right, maybe the Fed is wrong. But you know, at some point, we're going to have somebody throwing the towel on that. If it's the market, it could get ugly. If it's the Fed, it'll be embarrassing. Matt? Well, I mean, I, I joked about this when we were talking before about, you know, I'm, I'm safe. When the aliens invade in October, you want to be sure you're in concentrating on high quality names. But I mean, more seriously, in terms of what I think to be looking at anyway, I guess one thing is to what extent have all the big moves that have already happened kind of, is that it? Uh, and one thing interesting is that there was a huge move, for example, in the dollar against a lot of its trading partners that seems to have basically stopped. 
despite the fact, I mean, you know, you could say it was priced in or what have you, but I think it was interesting that when the, uh, the ECB a couple of weeks ago, they did something that was considered to be a big move that would help weaken the euro and actually the euro appreciated. And so I guess one sort of interesting surprise potentially could be, you know, is that it? Like maybe we're going to, you know, a lot of people are forecasting the euro is going to keep going down because the society's aging and it's becoming more Germanic with capital outflows, et cetera. What if actually we've sort of hit the limit and the euro starts going up, for example, what's that going to do? Or, you know, another thing that wonders, we've seen oil just getting crushed repeatedly. People thought it was going to bounce back. It did bounce back. It got crushed again. You know, is that the limit? Is it going to start going up again? If so, what an impact is going to be? You know, the American shale producers have been much more resilient than everyone kind of thought they would be in terms of their ability to keep producing. You know, who knows? These are sort of, I think, some interesting questions to look forward to for next year. I think you've both made the case for why we're going to have you on the show a lot next year with all of these topics. Rob- <laughs> Robin Wigglesworth, Matt Klein, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Okay. And those are the favorite stories of 2015 from our FT's US newsroom. Shannon. The perils of taped broadcasting as opposed to live. The news has overtaken us slightly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what happened? Well, Martin Shkreli, who David Crow mentioned, um, he's the CEO of Turing, this pharmaceutical company that was in the news when they did this huge price hike um, on a drug commonly given to AIDS patients and became everyone's favorite. Douche canoe. Pun- <laughs> douche canoe, punch- punching bag on Twitter, right. et cetera. He was arrested for basically running a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Had nothing to do with the price hikes, actually. But, but confirmed everyone's opinion that <laughs> yeah, he's just right. kind of a bad guy. Right. So. Absolutely had to mention that. Okay, awesome. Uh, and now I think it's time for the year's final long-form recommendations, and you and I are going to go last. But first, let's hear what everybody else in the U.S. newsroom had to say. The lonely death of George Bell on the front of the New York Times one Sunday, an elegy to a guy that would have been forgotten had the New York Times not spent 10,000 words on him. The Quiet German by George Packer in The New Yorker. This is the definitive profile of Angela Merkel, the German chancellor who has risen to become Europe's most important and powerful person. I just started Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, and it's amazingly written, so interesting, highly recommend to everyone. I'm going to go with former Grantland writer Bill Barnwell, who writes a long-form football analysis uh, every week, uh, now for ESPN. There's so much talk about data journalism uh, versus narrative journalism. He's doing uh, the best job of marrying both of them. So my favorite thing this year wasn't actually a book. It was a guy called Dimitri Reeves, who was doing Michael Jackson impersonations up in Baltimore during the riots. He was an amazing dancer who would stop traffic all day long with his moves. And one of his best songs was uh, Just Beat It, which was uh, an interesting thing to be dancing to as there were protests going on down the street after Freddie Gray had been killed. Mine is a two-part. I'm going to recommend Jonathan Franzen's Purity in companion with it. People should read Lucy Kellaway's profile of Jonathan Franzen. It's a great novel and people who liked Freedom and the Corrections will enjoy it. But as Lucy's profile gets across, he's not exactly the most likable character. Masters of the Word by William Bernstein. It's a history of the media book. It sounds a little bit navel-gazing, but it was really fascinating. Uh, Savage War of Peace by Alastair Horn. It's a history of France and Algeria with a focus on the War of Independence and uh, seems even more relevant than otherwise would have been this year. 
I was addicted to a series from the podcast, You Must Remember This, which is about Hollywood history, um, and it's called Charles Manson's Hollywood. It's a 12-part series, and it is about the Manson family, the murders, but everything else that was going on in Hollywood, um, sort of at the decline of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. Absolutely fascinating. Good recommendation, because I think it has a kind of a cult following in the U.S., but still a little bit obscure globally, very cultural, but also sort of melds business and history and all kinds of other things together. My recommendation is a book called Throne by an author named Carrie Howley. It is ostensibly about mixed martial arts, which I'm a fan of. But in reality, it's about the search, the longing for transcendence in a kind of civilized and atheistic or godless world and how hard it is to find that. And so it's about the sort of parasitic behavior of uh, a kind of made-up author. Okay, there's a weird kind of nonfiction literary conceit here. So it's about her trying to find that transcendence through the experience of others, specifically through the experience of mixed martial artists and their fights. It sounds deep, Cardiff. It is kind of. (laughs) It's a great book. Wait, Cardiff, one more thing. What's that? We have to get a recommendation from our amazing producer, Amy Keene. Good idea. Amy, get in front of the microphone, please. Hey, guys. Well, one of the perks of this job is that I get to read so many great economics and business books, but I think my favorite read of this year was actually an old Maya Angelou book, The Heart of a Woman. I think it's the fourth of her seven autobiographies. Basically, it covers um, a period in her life from the late 1950s to the early 1960s when she's traveling from California to New York, uh, Cairo, and then on to Ghana, and then I believe back again. Basically, it focuses on her work in the civil rights movement. But at the end of it all, it's really a story about a single mom raising a black teenage son in the middle of the civil rights movement. And I think it's as important to read now as it would have been when it first came out. And that's our show. Everyone have a happy new year. You can come check out show notes and links at ft.com slash alpha chat. You can tell us what you think of the show, what you want to hear next year. Give us a call at 917-551-5012 or email us at alpha chat at ft.com. You can tweet us. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. And Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next year. Thanks, everybody. And I should add quickly that Christmas came early for Alpha Chat. Instead of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the FT gave us Amy Keene. She's been amazing at producing, editing this podcast. Thanks so much for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners, and we'll see you again next year. 